Chapter 17 of Stormy Misty's Foal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stormy Misty's Foal by Marguerite Henry. Chapter 17 Sawdust and Sadness. Saturday. News briefs from around the world were coming over the radio like flack. India agrees to a conference with Pakistan. African leaders at the United Nations are exploring the common market. Russia accuses the United States of warmongering. Jordan and Israel again at loggerheads over the River Jordan. England's Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip return in triumph from Australia and New Zealand. The newscaster paused and took a breath, as if all this were far away and only a prelude to the real news. His tone became neighborly now and concerned. And here on the home front, the tiny flooded island of Chincoteague has aroused the sympathy of the whole nation. The islanders, whose livelihood depends on chickens and seafood and ponies, have suffered a savage blow to all three industries. Their oyster beds are gone. Their chickens are gone. And today's report indicates that only a remnant of the wild pony herds on Assateague Island have survived. These are the ponies that made Chincoteague famous for the annual roundup and pony-penning celebration, and that have brought visitors by the thousands. How seriously this loss will affect the tourist industry can only be estimated. Yet the Chincoteaguers are showing indomitable courage. With bulldozers and scoop shovels, they are pushing tons of sand off streets, off lawns, out of cellars, and back into the channel. Cleanup crews are making bonfires of rubble and debris. Oh, flash news. Two notes were just handed me. One says Misty, the movie star pony, has been evacuated from her owner's kitchen to an animal hospital in Pocomoke, Maryland, where her colt is expected momentarily. The other says the Second Army at Fort Belvoir is flying in helicopters within the hour to remove the dead ponies from Chincoteague and Assateague. At Pony Ranch, Grandpa snapped off the radio in mid-sentence. I gotta go now, he said in a tone of finality. Them's my orders. He kissed his family goodbye as solemnly as if he were going away on a long journey and might never return. No, son, he shook his head in answer to Paul's asking look. No, you're needed here today to work on Misty's stall. Somebody's got to ready it for her homecoming. Besides, Grandma and Maureen can't lift that wet rug out on the line by themselves. They need an able-bodied man. But who's going to help lift the dead pump? Grandpa cut off the word with a sharp glance. His eyes said, less talk the better, and his voice said, each copter has a crew of four stout army men, 
and there's Tom Reed and Henry Leonard to help me. Grandma's eyes were bright with unshed tears. Quickly, she went to the cupboard and took out a small brown sack. I was saving these peppermints for Misty's baby, but here, Clarence, you take them for extra strength, she whispered, when things is rough. Paul and Maureen were soon so busy with preparations for Misty's return that they forgot Grandpa. The phone might ring any minute long distance with big news from Pocomoke, and if it did, the made-over chicken coop had to be dry and snug and warm and waiting. The day was spent in a fever of activity. At first, they tackled the heavy, sodden straw with enthusiasm. They were used to cleaning Misty's stall every morning before breakfast. It took only a few minutes, fifteen at most. But now clumps of seaweed made the bedding slithery as soup and heavy as lead. With fork and shovel, they pitched and tossed for an hour. Each wheelbarrowful seemed heavier than the last, until finally it took both of them, one at each handle, to push it and dump the muck in the woods. Skipper found an old pulpy potato and asked Paul and Maureen to play ball, but they were too busy and too tired. At morning's end, the floor of the shed was emptied of wet bedding, but what remained was a churned-up slimy mass of mud. Maureen leaned against the wall, rubbing an arm across her face. How are we ever going to get it dry, she said, bursting into tears. Paul felt defeated, too, and his head and body ached. What we need, he groaned, is a thousand million blotters. But where? Suddenly, his face lighted in inspiration. Sawdust, he cried. That's what we need. He ran sloshing toward the road, calling back over his shoulder, You wait, I'm going to see Mr. Hancock. Mr. Hancock was a longtime friend. He was a woodcarver and had given work to Paul and Maureen when they were earning money to buy Misty's mother. Often, for fifty cents apiece, they had swept his shop clean of sawdust and shavings. By the time Maureen had finished her cry and wiped away her tears, Paul and Mr. Hancock were driving into the yard in his newly painted truck. She gaped in astonishment as she watched them unload bushel basket after bushel basket of sawdust at the door of the stall. Ain't near enough, Mr. Hancock said as he helped dump the yellow sawdust on the floor and saw it turn dark and wet in seconds. Tell you what, he said, noticing Maureen's tear-streaked face. It's eating time now, and we all gotta eat regardless. That'll give this stuff time to absorb all the wet it's a-going to. Then you gotta heave it all out, and I'll bring more sawdust and some chips, too. Lucky thing I had it stored high and dry in my barn loft. Paul piled the empty baskets into Mr. Hancock's truck. 
Then he and Maureen headed wearily for the house. Maureen was trying not to cry. See what I see? Paul pointed at the back stoop. And there was Grandma milking the nanny goat, who was tied to the stair railing. Shh, shh, Grandma warned as the children came up. Don't frighten her. This ain't easy, but I got enamost enough to make us a nice pot of cocoa. All during lunch, Grandma kept up a stream of conversation to cheer them. Children, she said brightly, a she-goat was exactly what we needed. If not for Misty, then for us. Ain't this cocoa delicious? Paul and Maureen nodded, too tired for words. You can each have two cups and all the biscuits you can eat with gooseberry jam. I figure the starving people of the world would think this is a Thanksgiving feast, don't ye? Yes, Grandma. And since you still got work on Misty's stall, you don't need to hang my rug outside today. I got all the windows open and there's a good breeze blowing in. Thank you, Grandma. Now, you two pertin' up. Everything's gonna be better this afternoon. Life's like a teeter-totter. Heartbreak, happiness. Happiness, heartbreak. You'll see. Everything'll be better this afternoon. Grandma was right. By the time the wet sawdust was shoveled out, Mr. Hancock was back again with a small tow wagon hooked onto his car. Got a big surprise for you, he chuckled. The road people was putting down some ground-up oyster shells, and I got em to fill my wagon plumb full. With them shells first, and the shavings atop that, you'll have the driest stable this side of Doc Finney's. The rest of the afternoon flew by in a fury of work. Paul dumped the oyster shells onto the floor. Maureen raked them even. Then came layer on layer of chips and shavings. For a final touch, they took a bale of straw and cut it up, a sheaf at a time, into short wisps. Why can't we just shake it, Airy? Maureen asked. My fingers ache. Why do I have to cut it? Do you want his pipe stem legs getting all tangled up and throwing him down? Course not. When you tell me why, I don't mind doing it. But, Paul, how do you know it's going to be a he? I don't, silly. People always say he when they don't know. Well, I say she. With the work done, Paul flopped down on the straw and lay there quite still. You sick? Maureen asked in fright. No. Then what are you doing? I'm a newborn colt, and I'm testing to see if there are any drafts. Dr. Finney says they can't stand them. I feel the wind coming in through the siding. I can feel it blowing my hair. That's easy to fix. Paul got up and plastered the cracks with straw and mud. Meanwhile, Maureen stripped some pine branches and scattered the needles lightly for fragrance. By twilight, any horsemaster would have tacked a blue ribbon on the old chicken coop barn. Maureen called Grandma to come out and inspect. 
You gotta see, Grandma. It's beautiful. Misty's gonna be the happiest mother in the world. Grandma, holding her sweater tight around her neck, stepped inside the snug shelter. She beamed her approval. I declare to goodness, I'd like to move in myself. Just wait till your grandpa sees this. Likely he'll do a hop dance for joy. But that night, Grandpa never even looked at Misty's stall. It was dark when he came home. Without a word, he made his way toward the kitchen table and sat down heavily. His face seemed made of clay, gray and pinched and old. Without removing his jacket, he sat there, hands folded, just staring at the floor. The noisy clock was no respecter of grief. Each stroke of the hammer thudded like a heartbeat. The seconds and minutes ticked on. Paul and Maureen sat very still, saying nothing, doing nothing, just waiting. Your grandpa's had a mill day, Grandma whispered at last. He's all cut to pieces. Just leave him be. It was as if the gentle words had broken a dike. The old man hid his face in his arms and wept. Don't be ashamed to cry, Clarence. Let the tears out if they want to come. Grandma put her clean, scrubbed hand on the gnarled, mud-crusted ones. King David in the Bible was a strong man, and he wept copiously. Her voice went on softly. In my Sunday school class just two weeks ago, I gave the story of King David. There was one verse, and it said, The king covered his face and wept. Just like you, Clarence. Neither Paul nor Maureen made a sound. They were too stunned. They watched the heaving shoulders in silence. Grandpa, who had always seemed so strong and indestructible, now looked little and feeble and old. When his sobs quieted, he wiped his eyes and slowly looked up. I ain't fit to talk to nobody, he said, his voice no more than a breath. Oh, oh, Grandpa, Maureen cried, your voice, it's gone, you ain't bellerin. And she ran to him and flung her arms about him, sobbing hysterically. There, there, child, don't you cry too. I'm plumb shamed to break down when we're lots luckier than most folks, he smiled weakly. We've got our house and each other and... And Misty, Paul said earnestly. And Misty, Grandpa nodded. It's just... He swallowed hard, and his hands gripped the table until the knuckles showed white through the dirt. It's just, he repeated, that all the days of my life I'll hear that slow creaking of the crane lifting up the dead ponies, and I'll see their legs a-swinging this way and that like they were still alive and kicking. Now the words poured from him in a tide, 
he couldn't stop the flow. And some had stars on their faces, and some had two-toned manes and tails, and some was marked so bright and purty, and most of the mares had a little one inside him. His voice broke. I knowed all my herd by name. How many were there in all, Clarence, yours and the others? Grandpa's breath came heavy, as if he were still at work. We lifted off more'n we could count, he said, including the wild ones over to Assateague. When the trucks was all lined up with their dead cargo, every one of us took off our hats, and the army men and us chinkateagers all looked alike with our sunburnt faces and white foreheads, and we was all alike in our sadness. Then the preacher, he come by and he said something about these horses needing no headstone to mark their grave, and he put up a prayer to the memory of the wild free things. He said, Neither tide nor wind nor rain nor flight of time can erase the glory of their memory. Everyone in the little kitchen let out a deep sigh as if the preacher's words were right and good. After a moment, Grandpa got up from the table and put his arm around Grandma. Now you see, Idy, why I had to smuggle you home? I needed you for comfort. Grandma wiped her spectacles with her apron. Must be steam in the room, she said. Grandpa had one more thing to say. For just this once it in my life, I wished I was a waterman instead of a hostman. When oysters die, you can plant another bushel, and when boats drift away, you can build another. But when ponies die, how can you replace them? Paul glanced around in sudden terror. It was as if a cold blade of fear had struck him. His eyes sought Maureen's. They were very dark and wide and asking, Was Misty all right? End of chapter 17